Lovely. Good morning. Well, we've had the passage read to us. It's Micah chapter 5. Hopefully you have uh, found your way there or in the process of doing so as we are going to be looking very carefully into this passage of Scripture that's extraordinarily prophetic and deals with both the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. So with that being said, I'd love to be able to pause with you and look together to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we're coming into your presence now, what we want to do is to be able to allow our hearts to be quieted before you. Chances are a lot of people in these services and those that are viewing online have an extraordinary to-do list that's competing for attention right now as they're looking at the events that are coming their way in the days to come. And Father, we thank you that you fulfilled your to-do list. It moved from to-do to done when Jesus Christ said it is finished on the cross. We praise you and we thank you for that fact. And what we want to do, Lord, by your, by your grace is to be able to link together this story of Bethlehem found in this passage of Scripture this morning with the story of Jerusalem and what that story entails with regard to Christ's entry in on Palm Sunday to die on the outskirts of on Good Friday. So, Lord, we want to be able to do serious linkage this morning and to see how all this fits into your master plan of redemption. Now, Lord, you know the needs of the hearts, those in the prior service, those in this one, those online. We realize that many are struggling right now with various respiratory ailments. We're praying, Father, whether it be new matters of COVID, RSV, influenza, whatever it might be, Father, that you'll meet them at their point of need and give them strength going into this coming week. Now, Father, you know then not only the needs of these hearts of ours, but you know what it is that we need from you. So, Father, in these coming moments, we're praying now that once again you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at what is appearing on the screen at this point. November 23rd of this year involved people out in the streets in Bethlehem, it's Manger Square. And what captures your attention right away is that this is a time of preparation where they want to get everything ready for the extraordinary number of tourists that will make their way to be able to celebrate services in that square on Christmas Eve. It's a place to be. What is interesting, as we've talked about in prior weeks, is that here in this modern era, Bethlehem has a high Muslim population. 
And what's interesting furthermore is that the Arab population in Bethlehem has a high percentage of Christians among them. It makes for a fascinating tension point within the streets. A particular building set in Manger Square is the Mosque of Omar. It's the old city's only mosque, as well as the Palestinian Peace Center. What's also interesting is that the streets that lead to the square are related to uh, the Christian faith, such as Star Street and Nativity Street, leading, you see, into the Church of the Nativity. Now, as we make our way to this whole matter of the nativity, just as they are in the process in this picture preparing for what's about to take place, it stimulates our own mindsets to begin to ponder the way in which God went about preparing, whereby generation after generation after generation God had a preparatory process unfolding to fulfill his promise of bringing Messiah into the world. We saw on our opening Sunday of Advent, for example, that there was Jacob. And Jacob would be burying Rachel just on the very outskirts of Bethlehem. The following Sunday, we pondered the story of Boaz and Ruth and their romance of redemption, if you will, that developed a line that would lead towards the one we know as David, whom we covered in the third Sunday, as he was being anointed uh, with oil by Samuel to be king of Israel. That was roughly around 1000 B.C. And what God does is that he views time much differently than you and I might, he takes time to prepare, doesn't he? And so now, a couple hundred more years go by, and everything has been so extraordinarily quiet in Bethlehem. And people have, again, overlooked it. But lo and behold, there is this prophet now that appears on the scene. And he is a prophet primarily devoted to the southern kingdom. Lived around 735 to 690 in terms of overall ministry responsibilities. And his name, Micah, means really, who is like Yahweh? And his name begged for people to answer that question. What I want to do with you is to go about trying to answer that question. As we look very carefully at the way in which the preparatory process that God has used, Jacob and Rachel, Boaz and Ruth, Dan David anointed by Samuel, and now the solitary figure in the 8th century B.C. who makes this startling statement about, about Bethlehem and that there would be a king coming from this realm in the future, linking back to David from Bethlehem. Out of all this, what I want to do with you is to look very carefully at what we'll consider this morning the two significant advents of Jesus Christ, found in these eight verses that were read to us. 
And when we look very carefully, we're going to be able to see just what God is doing as he prepares his people, not merely for this Christmas, but for that future day when Jesus Christ returns and puts all things back in order. Two advents that are found in this passage of Scripture. The first comes out of verses 2 and 3, which we're simply going to put like this, is that you and I, as we consider God's promise this morning, the Messiah, I want to begin by simply noting the first coming of God's chosen king. Now, we've got to get a running start, don't we? Here in verse 1, leading into verse 2, and I'll begin reading verse 1. You want your Bibles open. Where it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. What has happened is that the Assyrian forces now, around 722 B.C. in particular, would be the ones to remove um, the people of the northern tribes from the land. But the Assyrian forces right now being described here are posing a serious threat to Jerusalem in the south. Uh, With a rod they strike the judge of Israel, speaking of the king, on the cheek, and that would have been the king whose name was known as Zedekiah. Well, when I looked into some of the annals, historical annals, lo and behold, in the ancient Near East, there are texts that have been recently uncovered, archaeological discoveries, that contain some statements of this particular Assyrian ruler threatening Jerusalem that he had made concerning Hezekiah that are known historically to you and to me. I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, he laid siege to the city of Jerusalem when Hezekiah was in the city, and in some of the annals of the Assyrian kings, a statement such as this was found, quote, I shut him up like a bird in a cage, quote, unquote. And then again, I surrounded him with earthwork, quote, unquote. It is always astounding to me how God uses archaeological discoveries to just simply reaffirm what's revealed in the scriptures. And so now, in verse 1, you have God setting things up. Everything seems to be going wrong. Jerusalem's under siege. Where do you turn for a rescuer? God says, have you considered Bethlehem? Everybody thinks that the political forces in Jerusalem and the armed forces there, that's the means by which we're going to be able to protect the citizenry. And God is in essence saying, think again. And so you pick it up now in verse verse 2, as it appears now on the screen. And lo and behold, what you and I find here is that God begins to speak with another one of those buts. Everything's going wrong. But somewhere from verse 1 to verse 2, extraordinary contrast is being offered. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now God has done some extraordinary preparatory work to get to this point. 
Jacob and Rachel, Boaz and Ruth, Samuel anointed by, um, by, or rather David anointed by Samuel, and now, 200 years plus after that, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one is to be ruler in Israel. Begin to think about this with me. Now, Bethlehem means really house of bread. Ephrathah was the district in which Bethlehem was to be found. And what God is now saying is that my starting point to address the threat to Israel is a small beginning. Once again, never underestimate small beginnings. When we were, my sister and I, clearing out some of the belongings of my father after he had passed away, Marianne said, hey, Gary, you might want to tuck this somewhere in your files. It's another one of Dad's little stories that might have some illustration. It came from his sister and her husband, my aunt, uncle, who owned mines in South America. It goes as follows, that a South African diamond miner found one of the world's largest diamonds. It was the, it was the size of a small lemon. Now, the miner needed to get the diamond safely to the company's office in London. It was nearing Christmas time. So he sent it in a small steel box, wrapped, hired four men to carry it. And even when it was in the ship's safe en route, it was guarded day and night by at least two armed men. Now, my dad has the following underlined. But when the package arrived at the company's office in London and was carefully opened, it contained no diamond, but rather a lump of black coal. What do you make of? Three days later, the diamond arrived by ordinary parcel post in a plain package. For you see, the owner had assumed correctly that most people would not pay attention to an ordinary cardboard box. And I thought of Bethlehem at that point. And I thought of small beginnings. I thought about how God uses an embryo within the womb of Mary to bring forth a kingdom strategy. How Jesus would use some fish and some loaves to feed a multitude. How Jesus would take 12 and let's subtract one, and out of that 11, uh, build a movement of the gospel that would impact the entire globe. In other words, what I'm saying is that in God's sovereign strategies, he uses the microcosm to impact the macrocosm. The microscopic, if you will, to be able to impact the macroscopic of life. In other words, don't underestimate small beginnings. Don't underestimate small starts. God has a plan. And he uses such settings as these. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. And now what comes next captures my attention. Maybe it captures yours as well in the way that he goes about beginning to describe what's here. From you shall come forth for me. In other words, the Messiah is not coming so much for us so that he comes to do the will of of the people. He came to do the will of the Father. And so the purpose now of this mission is to come to do the will of the Father, Yahweh, the sovereign God of this universe, you see. Eight centuries prior, God is already delineating this plan for you and for me in microscopic form that will have macroscopic implications. From you shall come forth for me, one who is the ruler in Israel. And now, what I want you to begin to spot with me, this ruler has two natures. One divine, one human. Two natures in one person. Check it out. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In essence, what he's saying, from eternity time past. Divinity. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Humanity. Two natures in one person. Why? As we explain on Christmas Eve and again on Christmas Day, only a God could pay the penalty. Only man should pay the penalty. The sinless one, God. And so what we now see here at this point, two natures in one person, is Mary's little lamb is being set up to become the sacrificial lamb who came to die for your sins and die for my sins. But what also captures my attention at this point when I study very carefully the story that is unfolding in Micah's account here for you, and for me, is that if you were to turn to Micah 4, verse 8, you would find that Micah was addressing the people of Micah's day at two sites, S-I-T-E-S. One known as the Watchtower of the Flock, and the other one, the other one would be known as, if you will, the Stronghold. One is Bethlehem, the other is Jerusalem. And in just one verse, what the sovereign God is doing eight centuries before Jesus Christ comes in, breaks ground in Bethlehem to go to Jerusalem to die for your sins and mine. What God is doing at this point then is he's linking together his Bethlehem story with his Jerusalem story, so that you and I would be able to understand very thoroughly what it is that God is doing, what God is planning, and how all this begins to fit together, and how 
Christmas and Good Friday merge in God's sovereign plan. This, then, is why this had Herod all shook up. For you see, as we'll see next Sunday morning, when the Magi came from the east, following the star, and they made their way where? To Jerusalem, because they figured that's where the political strategies would be unfolding. They would find out very carefully when Herod summons the chief priests and the scribes who know the Older Testament passages and were able to recite from Micah chapter 5 of verse 2 that this one, born king of the Jews, born in Bethlehem, about 6.2 miles, you see, outside of Jerusalem, they would make their way southward. But this had King Herod all shook up, we're told. God has a way of linking Bethlehem and Jerusalem to be able to shake people up when they understand the purpose of Bethlehem is Calvary. The purpose of what Jesus Christ came into in Bethlehem was to make his way toward Jerusalem, to die for your sins, to die for my sins. And now all this begins, all this begins to fit together and Micah 4, verse 8, links the two in just one verse. What happens then? As Micah finds a way of linking the first coming to the second coming of Jesus Christ, notice then in verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And all the Jews that were dispersed in the Holocaust and so on would make their way back to Jerusalem, 1939. You might remember the story. Viennese Jew enters a travel agent's office and says, I want to buy a steamship ticket. Where to, the clerk asks. Well, let me look at your globe, please. So the Jew starts examining the globe, and every time he suggests a country, the clerk raised an objection. Mm, this one requires a visa for Jews. This one is not admitting any more Jews. This one, all oh, the waiting list to get in is about 10 years. And then finally, the Jew looks up and says, Oh, pardon me, sir, do you have another globe? Paul Tournier wrote an extraordinary book, A Place for You. You know, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, it was a place for them. Cain became a wanderer. And what we find is that humanity in general, but the Jews in particular, are looking for their place. Where I fit in. Where I belong Somewhere I can be accepted. Somewhere to be. Humanity is mocked by wanderings. Now, what God has done in 1948 is to reestablish statehood for Israel so that they could make their way back from, say, New York City onward to Israel and establish, reestablish 
their homeland. But it's easy to overlook how Bethlehem and Jerusalem fit together. And Daniel Hansen tells about the time he and a friend visited the site of the Battle of Gettysburg. Climbing a nearby observation tower, he was expecting to see a magnificent view, he writes. But they were disappointed to see only trees which surrounded the tower. Because when the tower had been built years earlier, the builders had apparently forgot that the trees would eventually grow to the point of blocking the view. And then Hansen, reflecting upon the Christmas story, says that life as a way of growing up around us to such a degree that we might no longer be able to spot Jesus in the Christmas story, nor understand how, how Bethlehem relates to Jerusalem. Well, God has a way of relating them. And so what we want to do now is to tie together the first coming that's found in verses 2 and 3 with the second coming, which is found in verses 4 down through verse 9. As we consider God's promise of the Messiah, not only did we consider the first coming of God's chosen king in 2 and 3, but now notice with me the second coming of, the, of God's chosen king in 4 through 9, and you pick it up with me now. You pick it up now in verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And what is so significant right now about that particular point is that he is using the very same imagery that the average person would understand about Bethlehem. That's where David shepherded the flock. And of course, you and I will know Christmas Eve that that's where the shepherds are, are going to be introduced to that angelic chorus, informing them of Messiah that has been born. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now, and he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You've been reading, perhaps, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a grandchild, maybe a nephew, uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. There's an interesting scenario. In chapter 10, lo and behold, there is someone by the name of Father Christmas who just kind of bursts on the scene from what seems to be absolutely nowhere. I remember reading that Tolkien... Uh, said to Lewis, who he mentored spiritually, uh, that he saw no place for Father Christmas in this story. It's sort of an interruption. It doesn't really fit in. Lewis, in his response, says it's part of the preparatory process of getting the people to start thinking seriously about the Christ figure known in this story as Aslan. Oh, it looks as if her power's already crumbling, said Mr. Beaver. What do you mean, Peter asked. Didn't I tell you? She, the witch, made it always winter and never Christmas. Didn't I tell you? Now look, come and see. And they did. 
It was a sludge. It was a reindeer with bells in their harness, but they were far bigger than the witch's reindeer. They were not white, but brown, and on the sledge sat a person whom everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him. He was a huge man, bright red robe, bright as holly berries, with a hood that had fur inside of it. It was Father Christmas. And they were both joyful yet solemn. Isn't that like Christmas? When you understand the purpose of the Messiah coming into this world. And what Lewis was doing at that point was that he was taking the Old Testament imagery and he was saying Father Christmas was necessary as part of the preparatory process to getting to Aslan. And likewise, what God is now doing is that he's taking this figure, Micah, who appears on the scene, and he announces that it's going to come from Bethlehem, and then eight centuries go by, and once again, Bethlehem is all but forgotten until magi from the east come looking, come looking for Jesus. And then you're not surprised. He shall be. He shall be their peace. Now look what happens in the heart of verse 5. You see where it says, when the Assyrian comes into our land, they'd all be nodding their heads aggressively as, as Michael is writing this, you see, because the Assyrians were at hand. But what God does when you're dealing with prophecy, he deals with both the near and the distant. The now and the not yet. And what we find here with the Assyrians is that they are a major installment on God's redemption plan that will lead to that final installment known as Armageddon when the enemies of Israel will encamp around in what is known as the Battle of Armageddon. So the Assyrians here are representative of the not yet what is still to come in the second coming of Christ. And when the Assyrian comes into our land, you're in verse 5, and treads in our palaces, then we shall raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. You say, Gary, now, can't they make up their mind? Are we talking seven or are we talking eight? Now, I'm glad that you brought that up. Because what we find in prophecy is that, generally speaking, they, when they use numbers such as that, they use what is called the X plus one factor. Seven, no eight, to make a statement that the forces are innumerable, countless, if you will. Now, what God will then do at this point is take all of that into account. When the Assyrian, speaking of that future day of Christ's return, comes into our land, treads into our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds, and they're thinking of Bethlehem at this point, and the shepherds on the fields, eight princes of men, they shall shepherd the land of Israel with a sword, the land of Nimrod, think Babylon at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. It's the now and the not yet. We need a picture, don't we? So put a picture on the screen, and lo and behold, what we see now is here is a shepherd on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And don't you love the strength that's exuded in the shepherd? Ponder his focus. He's not 
allowing for his eyes to go in every which direction. He is watching the sheep. He's taking care of them. They're his, you know. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're his, you know. And there he is. Look how barren the land is around Bethlehem. It means that the shepherd's going to have to continuously moving his sheep to new pastures, shades of Psalm 23. But meanwhile, there he is in his strength with his staff. And there's his sheep. And this is symbolic, you see, in many ways of Israel in particular, Jew and Gentile alike in general. I was reading Chosen People Journal this week, and um, Mitch Glazer, to his readership, said, Happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas. And he said, that seems to be rather strange to say because most Jews will simply say Happy Hanukkah, and not Merry Christmas. But for one who has put faith and trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, one can say both. And Hanukkah begins this evening. Well, now you're up to verses 7 through 9. And in verse 7, I want you to see how many times the word remnant is used because what God will do in that final day in him protecting Israel for what is eventually to take place the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, the dew from the Lord like showers on the grass, which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of men. And then for a second time, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples. Think of all the various settings globally that the Jews have been in, but are making their way back to, back to Israel. So notice the similes, like a lion among the beasts of the forest like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes to treads down and tears in pieces, there is none to deliver. And he's using imagery here to describe the battle of Armageddon and what is to take place with regard to the way in which God goes about then using his people to achieve his purposes for his glory in the civil war. I was reading about this. It was October of 1864, war between states. Federal troops under the command of Phil Sheridan took up position on a chain of low hills behind Cedar Creek, about 20 miles south of Winchester, Virginia. But then General Sheridan went off for a conference to meet with Lincoln and others. And then the Confederates began to get the upper hand and, and took in over 1,300 northerners, prisoners, and 18 cannons and drove the federal line at least four miles back. Sheridan got wind. And now reading from, from Bruce Katzen's fine historical analysis of it. Uh, Sheridan was meeting tangled wagon trains, fugitives, camp followers, stragglers, a motley sorry excuse for an army. But everywhere Sheridan rode among his cry was one and the same, turn back, turn back, get back into the battle. Catherine says the effect was electric. Everywhere men hitched up their, their garments, grabbed their muskets, cheered, started back to the battlefield. 
For Sheridan, it was a 20-mile ride on his huge black horse, waving his hat, yelling at his men, all along the way, shouting, as they were shouting, Sheridan, Sheridan, at the top of their lungs, he's returned. And I marked in that history book, here's an illustration worth noting. He's returned. Sheridan met one panicky fellow riding for the rear as fast as his mule could carry him. Sheridan asked him how things were at the front and received this answer. Oh, everything's lost and gone, but it will be all right when Sheridan gets here. And then he realized he was talking to Sheridan. And it might seem as though all is lost and this world is in utter chaos. And how can anything be put back together again? But then again, Jesus is on the way. And it took a Bethlehem for God to link to Jerusalem. And so in verse 9, you and I are told these words. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, speaking of that final battle still to come. All your enemies shall be cut off. Is it any wonder then that God could say, Peace, Shalom. It's for all those that are longing in this day and age for peace, but it comes through relationship with God, through Jesus Christ. And in eight verses, you have just linked together the first and the second comings of Jesus. Let's stand together. And so, Father, what we want to do now is to be able to take what we have learned here and equip ourselves to be able to explain better the purpose of this week, a reason for, for Christmas. It's to get us to Calvary where Jesus died for our sins. And so will there be one watching online right now or in the days or weeks to come, one in a prior service or one in this? If there are those, Father, that are still standing on the wrong side of the threshold whereby one enters into what we'll call on this morning the kingdom of light, I pray that right now they will put their faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation and understand how the first and the second advents are meant for us. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.